0: A hundred years ago this year, a white mob forced the entire black population of Corbin, Kentucky, to leave the town at gunpoint. It was one of many racial expulsions in the United States, but if you were looking for an account of the incident, you would search the official histories of Corbin in vain. Our friends at Scene on Radio investigated the story of what happened in Corbin and how it has all but disappeared from the public record. Until now. We join host John Bewin as he speaks to the mayor of Corbin, Willard McBurney, a retired postal service manager. People in my peer group, from they said they had heard from their grandfathers or from their dads, and it was just really passed on down from generation to, from generations, and that that's really the the gist of, of my knowledge of this.
1: And what version? What was it?
0: I mean, I, well, I heard that uh, there was a. Uh, a group uh, one night that uh, uh, forced a bunch of uh, uh, the uh, blacks out of Corbin and uh, uh, but then uh, I've heard that a lot of that it wasn't to that severity that you know they were they were employed by the railroad company and they did move some out but then they brought them back in two weeks later to finish the job and I think that is the railroad brought
1: in another crew of black workers In this version of the story, that's proof that the expulsion was not about race. In fact, in affidavits collected for the state's criminal investigation several months later, white eyewitnesses backed up the story told by the African-American man. They said the armed mob announced its intention to rid Corbin of black people, and that black baggage workers who tried to return a few days later were threatened and left again.
2: I know that some of the Negroes who were compelled to leave Corbin were property owners and had always been considered peaceful and law-abiding.
3: I do not consider that it would be safe for any of the Negroes to return to Corbin, Kentucky
1: at the present time. As a result of the investigation in 1919, a man named Steve Rogers, who had worked for the railroad, was convicted of leading the mob and spent two years in the Kentucky State Penitentiary. A lot of people in Corbin say there's no point in dwelling on something that happened so long ago. That's how Mayor McBurney feels. But at the same time, he admits the expulsion
0: haunts his town and its image. Uh, I had to go to a marketing meeting in uh, Cincinnati.
1: McBurney remembers an incident in the late 1980s when he was working for the Postal
0: Service. There was probably over a hundred of us in this meeting from various places.
1: The main speaker at the meeting was an African-American who'd flown in from Chicago and he was uh, going
0: through how our plans would do this and that. And if any of us had any problems, he said, hey, I'll personally come down and work with you on that. But he says, and he pointed his finger at me, he said, I won't come to Corbin. That's what he called Corbin. He said, I will not come to Corbin. And that really made me feel small to be singled out with a group of people like that. I knew that he had heard of the stigma that has followed Corbin. And, I mean, there was someone from Chicago.
1: For decades after the race riot, Corbin was known as a white man's town, with a visible Klan presence, a town that would tolerate only a token handful of black people. The criminal investigation did find that several whites stood up to the mob, a few protected black people in their homes or businesses. And as you heard, the local newspaper condemned the expulsion at the time. Journalist Elliot Jaspin says most people in Corbin and the other towns where racial expulsions took place don't know this part of their history either.
0: When you have the fable, the heroic acts of the people in the community are lost. They lose their heroes.
1: Writer Silas House thinks white people in a place like Corbin are especially reluctant to talk about their town's troubled past because of worries about Eastern Kentucky stereotypes.
3: Well, people think we're all illiterate, ignorant hillbillies who are also racist and misogynistic and homophobic.
1: But the decades of silence from Corbin's leaders may have backfired. Silas says by failing to publicly own up to the 1919
3: expulsion. Corbin has missed the chance to move past it. It was certainly talked about when I was a child and, and when I was a teenager, and people still talk about it. They probably don't talk about it to outsiders, but I think it's important to talk about it for several reasons. For uh, number one, you know, just to, to shed light on something that awful happening. Number two, it's, it's important to know about the place you're from. Storytelling is important. And, and number three, it's important to talk about because I don't think that we live in that kind of place anymore. And you know, to just maybe shed some light on how different it is today.
1: On the edge of Corbin, a congregation more than a century old meets in a sprawling, much newer building. Senior Pastor Tim Thompson of the First United Methodist Church says in August 2005 he was sitting in his office with some of his staff.
2: We're watching the news. Man, this thing has just wiped out. New Orleans and Biloxi and all that coastline down there.
1: Thompson and his staff decided to turn their church into emergency housing for people who'd lost their homes to Hurricane Katrina.
2: I went before the whole church on Sunday morning and said, here's what we want to do. We, we, we raised the issue. We're certain some of the folks that are going to come and live with us are going to be black. We're certain of that. Um, and we've just said, whatever, whoever comes, we don't care, it doesn't matter, we'll deal with it. It'll be fine. Um, and so the congregation said, OK.
1: The church hosted about 25 people from the Gulf Coast. They stayed in the church for weeks or months about half were african-american
2: our hope was that maybe a few of the black folks that came would stay here and live and become a corbinite live in corbin and essentially become pioneers so 15 or 20 years from now there's a growing population of black people in this town but a year and a half
1: later, almost all of the dozen or so African-American guests from the Gulf Coast had gone back home or moved on to places like Louisville or Lexington. All except David Sloan, who we heard at the top of the piece cutting his friend's hair. David came to Corbin from Biloxi.
0: I'm thankful that the church had the vision to open up their doors to bring us up here. I'm a I'm an adventurer. I'm a party. I'll I try anything at once.
1: When I met David, he was working in a cabinet factory in Corbin. He said he'd gotten some cold looks in town, and he thought unfair treatment in a couple of previous jobs.
0: A lot of the people up here are stuck back in the 60s.
1: But he said Corbin had not lived up to its old image as a sundown town, a place where a black person better get out before dark or else. His 79-year-old friend from nearby Barberville, Laverda Booz, agrees She told me these days she likes to shop in Corbin.
0: It used to be that you could walk on the street. Oh, that a nigger down the street. You would hear this in Corbin, Kentucky. But now it seems to be much, much better. Now you can walk into a store. You can get a nice smile.
1: Still, some people in Corbin say their town has a lot of work to do in putting its hateful image to rest, starting with some straight talk about what really happened in
4: 1919. You know, you were here Ten years ago, and I don't think that you would recognize downtown if you came back.
1: Laura Smith, the Corbin native who told the story of her mother's lie about where they lived. I checked in with her on the phone the other day, and she recorded herself. Laura's now 38. She lives in Egypt, Kentucky.
4: Egypt? Yes. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah, isn't it a good place name?
1: (laughs) Egypt is just 45 minutes from Corbin. Her parents still live there, and she's in pretty close touch with what's happening in
4: Corbin. Uh, We have a farm-to-table restaurant downtown uh, that features really great regional food as well as craft beers. We have a really great coffee shop.
1: Laura says with the coal economy's decline, which affects the important railroad business in Corbin, the town has had other economic successes. A new farmer's market led to other foodie businesses and the coffee shop, all owned by younger people who'd lived elsewhere and came back home.
4: Um, And they tend to be pretty progressive, too. So, you know, when I walk into, you know, a downtown restaurant now, um, it's... You know, one of the surprising things is that, one, it's packed, and there's actually people back downtown, which is great to see. Um, And two, it's a lot of young people, and it's very much a diverse crowd, people of color.
1: Laura doesn't know of any meaningful change in the actual black population in Corbin. She thinks those diverse people she sees downtown are mostly just in for the day from the surrounding area.
4: College students, and then there's also folks who are driving down from Lexington and places like that, or tourists um, who are, you know, staying in the area or on their way to other places, so I'm not sure... But
1: in the town known as the home of Colonel Sanders, you can now get a cup of Fair Trade coffee, and a local restaurant declared itself a sanctuary in the face of the Trump administration's travel ban on Muslim countries. Corbin's vibe is increasingly inclusive, as Laura puts it, which makes it all the more unfortunate, in her opinion, that the town still doesn't acknowledge its troubled past. There's still no public marker of any kind about what happened in 1919. In 2007, the same year a version of my piece about Corbyn aired on NPR, Laura and a young newspaper reporter in town organized a display about the racial expulsion at the public library, showing some of the documents you heard about in this piece, those affidavits about the race riot.
4: You know, court proceeding documents, um, clips from the local newspaper and also some of the national newspapers that covered it, and those were put on display um, at the public library for anybody to view. Um, you know, we there weren't... Uh, You know, there wasn't like a public dialogue around it, but they were publicly presented.
1: Also in 2007, the Corbin City Government organized a lecture series on the history of the town featuring a local historian. Laura went to those lectures and was disappointed.
4: You know, it kind of went to from the founding and kind of early, early history of the town to jumping forward to, you know, the mid to late 1920s. Um, so there was a, a sizable gap um, of history that wasn't talked about, including, including the year 1919.
1: Today, the city of Corbin's website features a history page. It includes some colorful details about the town's labor history it even mentions some violence among railroad and timber workers in the late 19th century that it says gave the town a rough reputation at the time but about the expulsion of hundreds of black people in 1919 and the town's image problems as a result of that nothing
4: as somebody who's from a town that, you know, where a significant race riot occurred, I think it's incredibly important that we um, air that and talk about it and have constructive dialogue around it, um, you know, and memorialize it in some way. Um, and I think that while there are folks that would think that would be detrimental to the town, I actually think it would be incredibly beneficial for the town, um, you know, and the good efforts that are happening there for that to happen.
0: Thanks to John Bewin and our friends at SceneOnRadio.org. That's S-C-E-N-E onradio.org for that story of the racial expulsion at Corbin, Kentucky in 1919.